This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and the host of Afternoon Briefing on the ABC News Channel. And I'm not Fran Kelly. Uh, I'm David Spears, sure? so I'm pretty sure. <laughs> host of Insiders, but uh, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No, we love having you and I love having you as my co-host as a fellow Victorian in stage four lockdown. We're all in this together. That's about to end. Um, now, David, it is wonderful to have you here. Uh, and I want to start before we bring in our guest and talk about the big issues of the week and there have been huge issues, mm. the the NBN uh, huge issue and, and some other issues. Energy. Mm. Energy, of course. But let's talk about the budget because it's like a week away yeah, now. It's, it's very close. It's a week from, uh, from Tuesday for those uh, playing along at home, marking it in their calendars. And this is, you know, being billed as the biggest budget of our lifetimes. And I think that's probably right. I think it probably will be. Feels right. Um, they're all important, particularly for those of us who've covered too many of them. Uh, but this one is going to be um, incredibly important for uh, all of us, for the economy, for the government's fortunes as well. There's everything riding on this. Um, so, look, a, a lot to pick apart. What do we know at the moment? Um, tax cuts. Tax cuts are coming. And I think it's going to be more than just bringing forward the ordinary legislative tax cuts, right? For this reason, um, they're, they're starting to wind down uh, JobKeeper and JobSeeker. At the time you listen to this, that, that'll be happening. 300 bucks a week goes out of your pocket. I don't think, and, and the government knows this, they can't at the same time give these big tax cuts to the top end of town at the same time they're taking money away from the unemployed in the middle of a recession. So I think the tax cuts, I don't know, but I think the tax cuts are likely to be a bit more than just bringing forward stage two and three. I think there'll be some tweaks to that. There's got to be something for those lower income earners. Absolutely. I completely agree. And we know why. If you look at the figures, people at the higher end are just saving the money. Yep. Uh, and that's not going to stimulate the economy if they're mm. just paying down their own debt or just you know saving up their money for one day having their best life. And at the bottom end, we know they want to spend the money and that's yep. where you'll get the stimulatory effect given we are in, you know, the doldrums really. So let's talk about Job Seeker. That's the yeah. unemployment payment used to be called New Start. The government hasn't committed to a permanent increase. There is a big campaign for that to happen. It's been a long-running campaign. But I think that the pressure now is kind of... Uh, they can't resist it anymore, can they? No, they won't do this in the budget, though. They're, they're going to leave it until later in the year, uh, much to the annoyance, the frustration of the welfare sector who wants them certainly on this and the, and the you know, millions of un or million of unemployed. Um, but they're going to wait until closer to the end of the year. At the moment, Job Seeker runs until December 31. Now, I don't think there's any chance they go back to the old news start, but exactly what they do, uh, are we going to step down? Is it going to be tapered off? Uh, is it going to continue permanently at, at somewhere in between? I mean, we just don't know. Um, there is a view in the government uh, that on the anecdotal evidence they're getting, and indeed some businesses are going public with this as well, that they're finding it hard to hire people. I'm not saying this is many businesses, but some are saying they're finding it hard to hire people because job seekers so high. Uh, why would you take a, you know, a, 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 a job that it requires a lot of travel or menial work, or whatever it is, when you can earn pretty good bucks on, um, when I say pretty good bucks, <laughs> of course, we're below the minimum wage here, but job seeker is a lot higher than the old doll used to be. Mm. So that's the argument as to why it, it's got to come down to get people, uh, use the stick to get people working again. But where it's going to land, we don't know. 
Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think we'll get many answers in, in the budget in just over a week's time. No, we won't get the answers, but it is interesting that when you put to, you know, and I do this every day, to any Liberal MP now, is $40 a day enough? All of them now say. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no one can sustain that argument. No, The thing I'm really looking to, to uh, look, we know there'll be a big uh, business incentive to invest um, and the Business Council have made clear what they want and they'll probably get something like that. Um, you know, 20% uh, immediate uh, write-off or deduction uh, and the, the announcement that Treasurer's making today as we record this around uh, small business uh, and uh, putting them in charge when they go insolvent rather than a creditor coming in, rather than a, an administrator coming in. Uh, that's really important, something small business have been after for 30 years. Only takes a, a pandemic and a big recession to get it, but that's, that's a significant ability for them to trade through, uh, if they want to stay alive, trade through insolvency, restructure, buy some time, put them in charge to do that. So that they're very happy about that. But the one thing I'm really looking uh, to see what the government's going to do is shifting away from the job keeper approach to an incentive to hire people, hmm. right, uh, for businesses that are going to survive. A lot, a lot won't, right, when JobKeeper's gone. But um, France, Germany uh, have already done this. The UK's about to do this. Probably by the time you're listening to it, they'll announce it. But it's where a, an employer can reduce your hours by 40%, maybe up to 50%, the government then tops up the rest of your salary that you would have been earning. Now, there's got to be rules around it, limits around it and so on, but I think this is going to be a really interesting approach to try and... It's all about jobs, getting businesses that can survive to start hiring. Yeah, look, and we have precedent for this in this country. I mean, the Keating government had the Job Start program. It's a kind of... Not... We'll see what they announce, but, you know, there has yeah. been... We have done different models yep. before. They haven't all been successful. No, and what actually, because I've written extensively about them in you know a previous role at the mm. Oz when I really covered this issue, they can be rorted very easily. Yep. And in fact, you know, it's a sort of bonanza for journalists because it's like yarn after yarn <laughs> of rorting yeah, yeah. Uh, that employers can do. So you do have to be very careful. And with this whole pandemic, there's been a rush to just get the money out, to get the programs out. They're going to have to balance that if this is a longer term project that's right. And the question is, is it permanent or is it, uh, I think the um, the French and German ones run for all of next year, uh, but that's it. They're sort of time limited to that to that extent. Uh, that would seem to make sense, right? Uh, you know, I think you'd need some sort of 12-month assurance around this. Um, and, and look, you know, how you would structure it. The government job keeper went with a flat rate, 1500 bucks a fortnight. Didn't matter if you were earning a hell of a lot more than that or a hell of a lot less And the than reason that. they argued, because Labor was very critical, is that they just wanted the money out the door. It was yep. the easiest way to do it. And it did mean there were problems, right? A lot of people were earning a lot more than uh, they were earning before pandemic. Um, but that was the you know the, the reason given that they had to get the money out the door and keep it fair and flat. So would you do? how would you do it with this sort of top-up salary uh, approach if they indeed go down this path? Would it again be a flat rate? Would it be a percentage of you know what you're earning for the hours you are working? How do you ensure that a business doesn't just you know, sack existing staff and then rehire to get the, the money from the government. Um, you know, all these sort of things, no doubt Treasury um, will be working on if, if indeed they go down this path. But um, yeah, I think it was Phil Curry reported it this week in The Fin that this is certainly something they're thinking about. The other area they will have to deliver on is universities. Yeah. Yeah, right. Universities are just laying off. They're bleeding, aren't they? Look, it's actually hard to watch because yeah. they are our most important, in my view, institutions for knowledge, for making us a world-class country in terms of research and ideas, science. Not a hell of a big export, right? Right. We've kind of, we need them to do well, yeah. right? We agree on that, David. Yeah. 
and they've been laying off lots of staff, a lot of those staff in research development. The areas actually that this pandemic has reminded us, we kind of need to keep doing well, given we're going to see more frequent pandemics and the globalised world has changed all of the rules around this. There has been some reporting in The Australian, I think, over the last couple of days that the the government is looking at a package around research too. Yeah, and I think they need to. I think the reforms that were announced, you know, it was really early on in this uh, whole crisis about restructuring university funding to steer more people into courses that will actually you know, meet the demand in the labour market and so on. Less funding for the arts, more funding for you know, engineering and so on. I just think that was a really ill-timed, misjudged moment from the government, not to mention the fact they're going to struggle to get it through the Senate. Um, so I do think there needs to be a rethink about this, um, whether it's going to be in time for the budget or in a separate announcement. Uh, yeah, I, I think universities have copped it in so many ways during this crisis. The, the disappearance of international students, by and large, um, you know, the, the struggles uh, they, they have faced in terms of not being able to access JobKeeper, now having to downsize... Where's that going to leave the sector on the other side of this when we're, as you say, really going to need it? Yeah, we're going to need it big time. Look, the budget obviously is going to be a key moment for the government, but it also will be a key moment for the opposition, Yeah, right? Because they've found it incredibly hard to get themselves into the space, the political contest, into the political fight. And David, it could be a year away, the, the next election. If you look right now and if you look, mm. I know polling's become sort of everyone doesn't trust it, but if you look at the polling, not good for Labor. Their primary vote is just in the – where is it? It's it's incredibly low. This is yeah. a real problem for them. What is the benchmarks for their response? I mean, the tax cuts are a challenge. They can't really oppose them. What will they be looking look, for? Look, it, it has been a very difficult – uh, period for Labor. There's no doubt about that. And I think there was, you know, a lot of acceptance uh, of that and the fact that uh, Anthony Albanese would have to tread that fine line between holding the government to account but not politicising, you know, a genuine crisis. Uh, and look, by and large, I think he did that pretty well in the early stages. No doubt in recent months with aged care problems, he muscled up, made it clear that and went after the Prime Minister, I think very effectively went after the government on that. Uh, and, I, and I think on JobKeeper, JobSeeker too, he made it clear that he was for continued government spending to support people through this rather than starting to taper it off just yet. Um, so there's no doubt his approach is a, a bigger role for government in the recovery, whether it's those support payments, whether it's more spending on aged care, uh, salaries and staff, on social housing and all these things, government-driven public spending to get us through. The government instead wants a private sector-led recovery and that's why tax cuts and business investment incentives and all these things. Um, so two very different approaches. Uh, Anthony Albanese's task in the budget reply is to articulate why his approach, of course, is the better approach and why the government is setting us up on the wrong path for recovery. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It is a high-stakes moment. Um, you know, there's no, I don't think, prospect of a change in leadership if an election's 12 months away. Uh, <laughs> what do you think, Vico? Uh, I think it's unlikely we're going to see a change in Labor leader. You're right. But if you talk to people in the Labor Party, as you do, I think there is con there is a concern now yep. that that they're not in a winning position and that the leadership is part of that story. Not the entire story. They don't blame Anthony Albanese entirely. But when you look at all the states and you look at the, you know, the, the popularity uh, you know, in, a, in a crisis time, can we really expect Labor to be in a winning position right now? Not so much.
I don't think so. I think you, we've got to be realistic in, in expectations of where Labor needs to be. Um, but, look, you know, I, I do think certainly at the start of next year, they need to be in a competitive position. Uh, in a two-party preferred sense, they're still in a competitive position. What is it, 51-49? Um, you know, Anthony Albanese, sure, may not be setting the world on fire, um, but I just don't think they're in a position where a change of leadership is necessary. You know, who do yeah. they go to? I don't think it's the answer to uh, where they are right now. Look, just finally, before we bring in our other David, um, there has been speculation for a while that the government will look at changes to the superannuation system, including deferring mm. the next legislated super increase. The Treasurer has had uh, the Retirement Income Systems Review for a while now. We're not going to see this in this budget. They've made no. it clear. But they are they are moving in that direction and we're seeing some pretty outspoken voices. Paul Keating, for instance, who's been rather vocal lately. Sure um, always enjoy uh, former Prime Minister Don't Paul Keating's <laughs> interventions. Yep. Are they going to go there? Uh, I look. I don't know, but I would. Su- I would suggest on balance, no, for the reason that I know they want to, and it's a growing view, a pretty widespread view that uh, you know going with the next legislated increase um, isn't a good idea for various reasons. Uh, but is it worth the fight? Is this worth losing the political skin that they're likely to lose by taking this on? And that, I think, is um, it, it's a hard one on balance at the moment to say that it is going to be worth it. But internally, they've got a lot of pressure. Um, you know, there is a strong move in inside the government to do this. Uh, that, you know, and it's, it's significant. There's a view that they need to dump this. Even the minister, Jane Hume, you know, saying essentially, what was it? She's ambivalent about, yeah. I don't know how a minister can be ambivalent. She's a lovely person, but you can't be ambivalent about your own policy, right? You've got to have a view. So, and then, you know, there's some formidable voices out there who will go hard, though. So it does set up a big contest if they decide to, to change sure. the Sure. No, I, I think that's right. But on the other hand, you've got the prospect of giving Labor a gift, the Labor movement, that is. Uh, Labor, the unions, Paul Keating, you name it, they will all be lining up to lay into this government for ripping off workers from what they've been promised, a legislated increase in their retirement income. So, you know, the script writes itself, uh, you know, I just don't, not to mention the fact that you'd have a lengthy battle in the Senate with without mm. much chance, I think, of getting it through. Is it going to be worth all of that? Um, sure, you're going, to, you're going to have some unhappy campers in the Liberal Party. Scott Morrison, though, is proving to be you know, the ultimate pragmatist. Oh, he's, he just has, he parks his ideology, doesn't he? And he just goes for what he thinks might work. How much ideology is there? You know, this is, this is the question. Um, And and Catherine Murphy in her quarterly essay really examines this well. Um, You know, and I think in the budget by and large, the, the one coming in just over a week, we are going to see a pragmatic approach, not the sort of big, bold restructuring reform of the economy that many said, you know, we, we need, we shouldn't waste a crisis, we need to do IR reform, big tax reform, all these and things. And you're not going to see a corporate we, tax no. cut, for instance, either, no, are you? No, no, we're not. Um, you know, they would argue their tax cuts are reformist, but, you know, on IR, I mean, you know, as this week wraps up, it's pretty clear they're not going to get much at all. The, the yeah. working groups couldn't even agree a, on... Number two accord is about to happen, no, is it? No, exactly. They couldn't even agree on, you know, when a long-term casual should become a permanent. And, you know, so I just think pragmatism will rule um, and I just don't, I could be wrong, but I don't see this superannuation um, move as a fight that's really going to be worth having. David, let's pause and bring in our guest, David Crow. He's the Chief Political Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> David Crow, welcome back to the party room. It is great to be back. 
Hello, David Crow. Look, I want to start by getting in right into this energy roadmap that was uh, unveiled by the uh, the Minister Angus Taylor uh, uh, during the week. What, what do you what do you make of it? Eighteen billion dollars over the coming decade, but it, it just seems to me. It's you know money going to Arena, to the CFC, the, the Green Banks to spend on priority targets that can change every year. I mean, is this is this essentially just saying you know these bodies will keep doing what they're already doing? I think there is an element of that because when you look at the numbers, they're actually continuing the annual funding for these um, institutions slightly below some of their previous funding, actually. Now, it's $18 billion over a decade, so it's not to be sneezed at. That's serious money and taxpayer money at risk. Uh, and in a sense, I mean, the government's basically taking advantage of institutions set up by Labor and the Greens. The tricky part is that they're trying to redirect their priorities, and I think that's where, mm. and this, this that's is, where the clash comes. Yeah, this is identifying those five priority technologies, which, as I say, can change each year, but at the moment... You know, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, soil carbon, green steel, uh, you know, getting batteries going further and so on. I mean, these are, in a way, uh, obvious areas for the government, at least, to go after. They need to expand the remit of ARENA and the CFC to do that. But, um, you know, once they've done that, is 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 this a radical uh, departure from where this government's been going in climate and energy in the last few years? No, I mean, the emphasis on soil carbon, um, the idea about carbon capture and storage, that's been, those have been things that the coalition has been talking about for a long time now. Um, and now they've got more money to put into those things. What they don't have, and this frustrates me, they don't have uh, a benchmark by which we can judge their success. Mm. I mean, by their own um, rhetoric, they're already ahead of their 2030 target. Now they add $18 billion to that, and yet we don't have any way in which we can tell whether that money is well spent or not because they're not, they're not offering any indication of whether they'll be more ambitious about that target in the future. And net zero after 2050, well, in the second half of the century, well, that's five decades in which to reach the target that they're talking about. Yeah, it's a long time, and that was confirmed in that interview with you, David Spears, um, on Insiders, where the Prime Minister just won't commit to net zero emissions by 2050, and we don't know where the roadmap actually, you know, where the benchmarks are, as you say. Look, the the government also argues that the low price of gas makes it... um, you know, not just a useful transition fuel, but a good way to power the economic recovery. This gas-led coronavirus recovery is the kind of way they've framed it. I spoke with former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull uh, this week, and uh, you know, people were talking about the interview because whoa, he got pretty fired up about this. Let's take a listen. To say that that is going to lead your energy revolution uh, and cheaper energy is a fantasy, and the reason it's a fantasy is because there is not cheap gas on the East Coast because it costs too much to extract. Now, that's just a fact of geological life. It's interesting, uh, David Crow, because... I'm using surnames because it's two Davids. Uh, David <laughs> Crow, because uh, actually... You know, Malcolm Turnbull said that, but actually on the right, uh, we've got Matt Canavan, who made the same argument in an opinion piece in the Australian newspaper. So not everyone's such a big fan of this gas-led recovery. That's a really good point because um, uh, it's also on song with Mark Butler. Mark Butler argues that um, he's not saying no to gas as the Labor energy spokesman, 
but he is saying gas on the East Coast is too expensive. So, you know, that's Matt Canavan, Malcolm Turnbull and Mark Butler lined up on that key point. And I think the key test here is um, the Santos project in New South Wales because the big gas plan from the federal government names five basins to develop gas and increase supply. One of them is Beedaloo in Northern Territory. There's a couple in Queensland. The first one off the blocks is Narrabri in northern New South Wales. And Santos says that that'll be producing at $6.40 per gigajoule at the wellhead. Then you've got to factor in the cost of transporting it. And according to Malcolm Turnbull and others, that's just too expensive to support a gas-fired power station over the long term when batteries are going to keep falling in price. Look, I would say, and Malcolm Turnbull may well be right, that certainly in a few years' time, uh, gas won't be economic, that batteries will be able to provide their firming capacity for renewables. Let's not forget, though, as Prime Minister, uh, Malcolm Turnbull went to great lengths to get more gas into the market, didn't he? I mean, he regularly got stuck into New South Wales and Victoria for not developing more gas. He he introduced that export control trigger to limit exports of gas so that more would be available on the domestic market. I mean, he was all about gas for a while there. Yeah. And in fact, what, what has been outlined over the last 10 days or so has been completely consistent with that because... Um, it's about increasing supply. And look, I think the, the other key thing is it's not just about gas being piped down to Sydney and Melbourne, although that um, would be needed to keep prices down for consumers and business. But there's a whole lot of gas being exported. And I think it's very difficult for Labor to argue against those gas exports. So I think it's really interesting that Mark Butler has you know, made this speech or penned this speech about gas not being the past to long-term future prosperity. For, for a lot of jobs in Queensland and other places, they'll want to keep exporting gas for a long time to come. Look, I want to change the topic if I can, because on Wednesday the government announced a $4.5 billion upgrade to the National Broadband Network that sounded pretty, you know, kind of familiar to Labor. Here's Kevin Rudd. This is a monumental policy backflip by the Morrison government which has spent seven long years attacking my government's original plan, only now, seven years later, to begin delivering to Australians what they should have had all along. So, David Crowe, how close to Labor's policy is this? Is it a backflip? That's what Labor says it is. But is it actually a backflip? I think Kevin Rudd was way overdoing it in that, in that comment. Um, they're upgrading the network. They're not completely re-engineering the network to do what Labor said back in, you know, when they were last in power. Um, consider the full cost of that network, $50 billion plus, and we're talking about a $4.5 billion upgrade. Um, so it's an upgrade, it's a sensible upgrade. It's not delivering um, fibre to the home to everybody, which was the original Labor plan, or to most people. It's just not doing that much. It can't do that much with a couple of billion dollars. Um, it's actually moving fibre closer to homes, reducing some of the use of copper, but it's not a complete redesign. And I, I think I think that that sort of side of it has been exaggerated in some of the just commentary. To, just to pick that apart, I'm uh, uh, freely going to admit I'm no expert on uh, laying fibre and copper here and where the, where the dollars lie, but this argument does seem to come down to this, right? Should they have done the fibre to the home first time around? Would that have been cheaper than doing the mixed uh, technology yep. method? They did the MTM and now... 
going to this upgrade to fibre to the home, right? So does it require... Mike Quigley, the former boss of, of the NBN, who's, who says they've wasted a hell of a lot of time and money on this, he reckons they have doubled up, right? Building, essentially laying uh, two types of networks in a lot of parts by, by doing it this way, this way, and that means a huge amount of additional cost. Is it clear that's right? I mean, when they did fibre to the curb or fibre to the node, sure, you've got to lay the fibre to that point, do they then have to dig a trench to get the copper extension to your house? And now do they have to redig that and lay fibre? I mean, is that is that where the cost lies here? I'm I'm not sure if anyone's. Uh... Is there going to be too much digging? That's what he's asking, <laughs> David Crow. How much digging well, is going to happen? Well, I'm not sure that they're digging up old fibre. Right. Um, but also, look, we can wait and see on this, and we can we can test this over time. It's it's a bit hard to expect all these answers in two days. Um, the other one key thing is. I mean, in terms of a job creation program during a, during a recession, sure, doing this it. kind of work yeah, just yeah, makes get a busy lot digging. of sense. <laughs> and, and all networks are upgraded over time. I mean, I think the, the counterfactual or the, the big question that's so difficult to answer, and, it, and it's why a lot of the arguments about this is really a legacy war. It's a fight mm, over the Rudd right. legacy, a fight over the Conroy legacy, over Quigley's legacy too. The big question is, could they really have de- developed and, and built what they promised as fast as they promised it? Because the government's argument has always been they needed to quicken the pace, get it out, use the, the multi-technology yeah. model, and then upgrade over time. Uh, look, I, I do think too, though, the argument that um, they, they should have foreseen that Australians would want higher speeds over time. There's there's something valid in that, right? I mean, it's not just because of COVID and working from home and suddenly having to download and upload, you know, daily as we are uh, with all these video calls. I do think generally, you know, we, we should have expected that we would want higher speeds over time, yes. right? And and I think there's a a very fair point for all the critics of the NBN here and the government on this. It hasn't delivered as much as it was as was promised. I know as an NBN customer, I get 25 meg speeds, mostly. Mm. I mean, that's way less than what I'm meant to be getting simply because of the technical aspects of the network. So that's just my personal experience. I know that it's repeated among a lot of people who don't get the speeds they want. So there's been that. that that's something the government's got to answer for. Yeah, and look, at the end of the day, you need to make the point too that a lot of this does seem to be about gearing it up for sale, not this year, not next year. You know, we're talking some years down the track. Once this is all done, uh, it will then make it a far more valuable asset to, for the mm. taxpayers to flog when we're uh, looking to pay down some debt. Mm. Uh, I wonder who they could sell it to <laughs> other than Telstra. <laughs> this, is, this is the classic thing that, that um, the Howard government went through as well when they sold Telstra. To the share market. I mean, mm. what do you what do you put a priority on? Yeah. Service quality for Australians and the structure of the industry over the long term, or the asset price. And we know what the Howard government decided. They wanted to pump up the value of Telstra, rather than think longer term about how to build the network that the country needed. Fundamental decision back then. Um, what would the government choose? Uh, competition in the market by selling the NBN to somebody other than Telstra, or asset price by selling it to Telstra. Let's move to another story. The Auditor-General has blasted mm. the ethical standards of the federal government for buying a piece of land at the Western Sydney Airport site for roughly 20 times what it was worth. I mean, I'd love a property sale like that in my house. <laughs> uh, Paul Fletcher was the minister at the time but didn't sign off on the decision. 
Uh, in fact, I interviewed him this week about it, David Crow, and you know he was he said you know it's the department, it's the department, it's the department. You ask the department secretary, you know it's not my issue. I said, hang on a minute, it's Westminster system. You are the minister. Uh, what are you going to do about this? It's pretty bad. How damaging is this? What do you make of the government's defence? I think it's hugely damaging. I think it's a genuine scandal that needs uh, way more investigation, like a huge investigation. And I think that Paul Fletcher may have grounds to say he can't answer some of the questions. He was pleading ignorance, basically. Now, you know, first of all, a minister um, takes responsibility for, for, for his department and his officials, and it's the minister's job to put those officials... Um, sort of on the spot and make sure they're doing the right thing. But here, there are clear indications in this audit report that the officials didn't keep the minister or even the department secretary informed of what was happening with some of the changes. So that really worries me because I don't... I think those officials have really got to answer for themselves. Well, I asked the minister, I said, why? Why? Like, it's one of those, you know, journalistic basic questions. Why do you think they weren't... (laughs) Keeping you appraised, said, I don't know. It's well, a, someone's got to tell well, us. It's it, yep. it's a fascinating read, this audit report. And mm. can I say, look, thank God for the Auditor General's office, yep. right? They are, they, let's not forget sports rorts. Yep. Uh, and in, in the absence of a National Integrity Commission, uh, thank goodness we have the Audit Office doing this oh. sort of stuff. Um, oh. You know, hats off to those, uh, you know, investigators. Can, um, I, can I add a bit yeah. of trivia, Spearsy? I love um, trivia. One of, one of the auditors is Brian Boyd, who was the auditor also on the Sports Water Fair. I mean, that guy is Auditor of the Year. I, I, auditor of, of the Year. This guy's awarded, found every rot. We have awarded the Auditor of the Year award. I like it. Now, um, you, you read through the report and it's just, you know, error after error, blunder after blunder. You know, the, the per hectare land value is 22 times what the New South Wales government had paid for a smaller part of the land for a road upgrade. Um, you know, the fact that the decision maker, the deputy secretary of the department, uh, decision maker is the title here, but didn't know the price tag of this sale when making the decision. I mean, it, it's there's ethical questions raised. Uh, you know, mm. these are billionaire brothers who, you know, surprisingly have gone to ground. I doubt they're going to return the, the, the taxpayer money. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, in the scheme of the dollars we're talking about every day in relation to the budget, 30 million bucks is, you know, neither here nor there, but it is. It's a scandal. And I think Paul Fletcher's response, you know, yes, he's right. The Auditor General uh, does not find any wrongdoing on his part. He was not told about this wild overvaluation, but his reaction to it with UPK at the press club and everywhere else, um, you know, I thought there should have been something to say, we are going to have an internal investigation or a public inquiry or whatever it is uh, further into this. Heads are going to roll. You know, we don't want people in our department who are making ridiculous decisions like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to write about this in the next day or so. And one thing that I... I mean, to me, it, it says National Integrity Commission as soon as possible. Yep. It also says ministerial responsibility, the whole doctrine of it, needs to be enforced. We've got a case in um, just on that. How do you do do that, though? I mean, I I get what you I get what you're saying, and I hear this point often raised. But what does ministerial responsibility or accountability really mean in a in a practical sense? This is the big question here, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 a political construct, really. What what does it mean? It means higher standards for ministers to do their job with fewer excuses for when things go wrong. They have to answer for decisions made under their, on their watch by their departments. Now, 
uh, ultimately, it really is only something for um, the community to enforce, and that's why I think the media has to be completely on this for the long term. Um, but it's something for the Prime Minister to enforce. And I've always argued that it's in a Prime Minister's own interest to make sure that it's enforced fairly strictly. Mm. You don't want to toss people out at a whim, but you want to keep them on the, you know, focused. And if you and if you let them get away with stuff then and, and don't hold them to account, then you end up with poor ministers and poor decisions. Look at what's happened in Melbourne. We're not clear on which mm. department was in charge of hotel quarantine, which minister was in charge. They can't answer clear questions in that inquiry in Melbourne. Mm. That's another example of complete blurring of ministerial responsibility, which leads to bad outcomes. Yep, and that one's still going around and around and around. Mm. Uh, look, uh, finally, Dave, we uh, were talking earlier about the budget just over a week away. What are you um, most looking forward to uh, finding out in the documents? Well, I'm, I'm looking beyond the whole deficit number, 200 billion plus. We all accept that, you know, that's what it's going to be. I think the focus is on the personal tax cuts, how generous and how fast they'll be, the business investment allowance, whether it's going to be big enough to do what business wants, which is to encourage them to hire more staff and get over that unemployment hump. Um, I think there'll be new incentives, not as big as JobKeeper, but new incentives with, uh, for, for employers to take on hmm. uh, workers. But I'm really interested in the skills agenda. I mean, right now is a time where... They should be reskilling the workforce for the post-pandemic. Um, and I think that's a big, big personal issue for Scott Morrison. And I'm very interested in how, how much of a scene that's going to be in the budget. Oh, look, it's been such a pleasure to hang out with two of my favourite Davids. <laughs> and if you watch Shit's Creek, I'm going to do it again. Um, it happened on, I don't know if you know, but I said on Insiders very deliberately uh, when I was on last, David. David. <laughs> I have been getting that a bit. Uh, David. And since you know what? the popularity what? of that show. The uh, viewers knew what I was doing. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a good week for Shit's Creek. A good week for the party room. See you later, David Crowe. Thanks, Crowe. Cheers and thanks. Now, just before we head off, we've got a podcast top tip for you, which is This Working Life, also from RN and hosted by Lisa Leong. Yeah, it's Stress Tests, the uh, the latest and greatest ideas from the world of work and business. It's your main line to the experts, which give you ideas and inspiration to deal with the tough times. And there were a few of those, David. There are a few of those. So it's kind of like LinkedIn, but much, much more fun. It's This Working Life and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. That's it from us this week. David, thank time. you so much for hanging no, out. It's been a pleasure. We should do it again. We should. And I would mention that you can hear David on RN Drive all of next week while I do something. I don't know what it is going to be yet. Depends on the restrictions being lifted. Uh, we I record this on a Thursday big morning. Big shoes, big shoes. Oh, huge. See you, David. See you, Pika. Just months after taking office, US President Donald Trump will be threatening North Korea with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And that wasn't the only war on the horizon. We begin tonight with the US and Iran on the brink. How did Donald Trump push back on his White House warmongers? I'm Matt Bevan, and that's the story in this week's episode of America If You're Listening on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.